You know, usually after you spend your lifetime focused on something, studying something, becoming good at something, you might have some affinity toward that which you've done, right? I think of General and then President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Successful, hard worker, had spent time studying and mastered, you might say, the science of war. But this is one statement that he made that probably stands out in my mind as much as any other. He says, I hate war, as only one who has lived it can, only one who has seen its brutality, its stupidity. Today we're going to be talking about love that hates. Now that may seem like a peculiar juxtaposition of words, love that hates. Hate surely is inimical to love. Surely someone can't use those two words in the same sentence as if love could hate, but indeed, I believe it's true. Love can hate. And today we're going to look at three main principles. We're going to flesh them out from our study of the book of Romans. We're going to be looking at the chapters in Romans. We started a couple of weeks ago looking at Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the latter part of Romans chapter 1 and also at Romans chapter 2. And we're going to find three profound and distinct truths, I believe, in our study today. First of all, we're going to find that God is a God of love. And God loves who, friends? God loves sin sinners. In fact, Jeremiah's message to a wayward Israel from God was this, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and with loving kindness have I drawn thee. I have loved you with an a lo everlasting love, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you, one translation reads. God's love for us has no beginning and no ending. Even if those, God forbid, should be separated from Him eternity by their refusal to accept His love, He will keep on loving them. Because there's a heart in His, there's a place in His heart, especially just for them. We are familiar with the best known text in all the Bible. What is it? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And of course, we know John, overwhelmed by this, towards the end of his life, um, writing the epistle of 1 John, he says, simply, God is love. But there's another truth that we must, we must recognize, and that truth is that sin separates us from God. In fact, if, you'll, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you have them this morning, we're going to be spending some time, not just in the book of Romans, but in other places in the sacred word. Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2, the, uh, the, the, the prophet expresses in a very succinct and clear way the consequences of sin. It says in Isaiah chapter 59 and verses 1 and 2, are you there? Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, 
nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have what? Separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. You see, God made man in the beginning, and friends, we've gone over that story. You're familiar with it. Man chose to disobey God's word, to disobey God's instructions. He sinned, and it wasn't just the act of eating a piece of fruit arbitrarily, it was an act of the heart where Adam and Eve chose. To rebel. They chose to do what they knew was the wrong thing to do. You see, sin ultimately has to do with our hearts, doesn't it? It has to do with the decisions that we make, but it's the attitude and the perspective of our hearts. And Adam and Eve sinned, and because of that sin, they were driven out of the garden. They were separated from God. And we tend to, as human beings, we tend to read this story from a very, a very a uh, human-centered perspective. Oh, isn't it terrible that Adam and Eve had to leave the garden? Isn't it terrible that Adam and Eve's first son was the murder of their second son? Isn't it terrible that, you know, they, they suffered thorns and thistles and pain in childbirth and all of these things, but we rarely spend much time thinking about what sin cost God. And if we could somehow just peel away the blinders off our eyes and see what sin cost God, sin broke the heart of a loving God who, who lovingly created our first parents and then had to be separated from them. Sin separates and sin is painful to the heart of God. And you know, when we read in the, in later in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the, 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 the wages of sin is death. There are some Christians who, or even critics of Christianity, who see this as a, a, a judgment call, a, a, a subjective decision by an angry God who is not liking people who have rebelled, to say that the wages of sin is death, that's what he's going to punish them with. But I believe this is the statement of fact of a God who is broken by the truth that separated from him, his loved ones have no source of life. His loved ones are separated from him. And apart from salvation by his blood, will be separated from Him forever. Do you see why God hates sin? Because sin separates Him from His loved ones. Sin separates Him from you and from me. And the whole plan of redemption, friends, the whole plan of redemption is simply calculated to restore man with God. That's the point of Jesus coming and living and dying. That's the point of His ministry now on our behalf. That's the point of Him coming again to take us to where He is. It's because He wants to be with us. He wants us to be with Him. He wants to be restored. Sin separates us from God, but praise God, there's a plan to be reunited. So first... God is love, and God loves sinners. Second, sin separates from God. And third, we must recognize that God hates sin as only one who experienced it can hate it. You and I can say, you and I, and there may be some veterans here, but you and I who've not been in the trenches, we can say we hate war, but only 
As Dwight Eisenhower said, he hated it as only one who has experienced it could hate it. And I want to tell you this morning, my friends, Jesus hates sin as only one who has experienced it can hate it. You see, while we think that we are doing fine in this life, in this world, while we think that everything is going fine and we're bandaging our wounds and we're living a life in denial, Jesus has tasted the full measure of the wrath of God against sin. He has tasted what true eternal separation feels like. And he hates sin as only one who experienced it can. I want us to make something very clear here as we look again at Romans. I want us to make something very clear. God loves sinners, but He hates sin. God hates sin because it separates His beloved from Him. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to remember that a few weeks ago we were talking about the, the, the power of God that is unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Amen? He wasn't ashamed to be counted the follower of one who died upon the tree. He wasn't ashamed to have that stigma attached to him. In fact, when he came to Corinth, we saw he determined to lay aside the sophistries and the, and the, the, the smooth sayings and the great preaching and oratory. He decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why? Because in Christ crucified there is power. In the blood of Jesus there is cleansing for our sins. In the blood of Jesus there is peace that passes all understanding. In the blood of Jesus there is power to make the sinner whole. And not just to, to, uh, to legally justify us, but also to change our hearts and to give us victory over those things that have enslaved us. The blood of Jesus. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And so when he comes to the middle part of Romans chapter 1, he's just given this introduction. He's talked about how he wants to preach the gospel in Rome also. But he says in verse 18, For the wrath of God, that's the hatred of God, the anger of God, is revealed from heaven against all what? Ungodly people. Is that what it says? No, that's not what it says at all. We tend to superimpose that idea upon God. But the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, what does it say, friends? Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's not the people that God is angry at. It's not the people that God hates. They're His beloved. They're His creation. We're His beloved. We're His creation. But the unrighteousness that separates us from Him, He hates. And he, 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 he must hate it enough to even tell us about it. In fact, as we go on and as we look at these verses, we notice that, um, that this theme comes out clearly. It's not the people that God hates, but the sin. In fact, I think that this is just important enough for us to contemplate for just a moment. God loves sinners, amen? He hates sin, amen? But why is it that we as humanity tend to have things completely backwards. We tend to love sin and hate sinners. Is that true? Am I telling the truth? We have, we have the opposite of the heart of God in our natural carnal hearts. We love the sin and hate the sinner. 
And so there's something that needs to be done in our hearts. Paul is writing this, Roman, this letter to the Romans, and he's, he's speaking of this wrath of a just, righteous God against the unrighteousness and ungodliness of this world. And as Paul's writing this letter, remember who he's writing it to. He's writing it to the Christian church in Rome. He's writing it to the believers there who are being bombarded by a culture that is hostile to Christianity, that is hostile to godliness. He is, it is a culture that is inimical to morality and disdainful of selfless truth. And he writes this letter to them saying, uh, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Can it be even the ungodliness in our culture we see around us? I can just imagine this letter being read in Rome, in church on a Sabbath morning. And the people in Rome knew what he was talking about because they were, sub- they were, they were, they were submerged in this culture that was, that was inimical to everything they believed. And it was like fish swimming upstream to try to live a godly life in Rome. I mean, Rome was a terrible corrupt place. It was an affluent place. It was a wealthy place, as many statues as there were citizens, artwork everywhere, education supposed, supposedly. Um, there, was, there was the science and all the, uh, the art and, and all the philosophers and all the temples and all the different rituals, and there was power plenty, but it was all in contrast to the religion of Christ. And as we think of Rome in those days, you must not think for a moment that the sin Paul was describing to the Romans reading the first chapter of his letter here was only, were only sins that were carried on in secrecy under cover of darkness. No, it had come to the point in the Roman Empire where sin was open and flagrant. It was blatant. It was in your face. It was, it was not just in secret The sins and abuses were not just carried on against minors or slaves, as some have suggested, but these are abuses that were practiced among the aristocrats openly and brazenly. Notice what he says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 19. Because because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore, it says, God gave them up to the uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies, and so on. You see, these were, these were serious sins that Paul's addressing. I mean, I think we have to be honest, right? Paul's being blunt. This was not something that was, these were not sins that were, um, that were out of vogue in the culture. No, Paul is going counterculturally when he writes the Church of Rome, and he says, these are, these are sins that the wrath of God in heaven is directed against. I want to just share with you how, how at society in the highest levels of Rome had begun to pander these sins as legitimate. And even the, the uh, perversions of natural relationships had been, had been, they were attempting to institutionalize in the place of marriage. This is what um, 
This is what uh, Tacitus says of Nero, the translation, of course, of his Greek history. Nero was already corrupted by every lust, natural and unnatural. But now he refused any surmises that no further degradation was possible for him. For he went through a formal wedding ceremony with one of the perverted gang called Pythagoras. And this was another man. The emperor, in the presence of witnesses, put on the bridal veil, dowry, marriage bed, wedding torches, all were there. Indeed, everything was public, which even in a natural union is veiled by night. That is the culture in which the church was living in Rome and which Paul was addressing. This is a history of what was going on at that time. This was a tough thing for the church. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? It was in this social context that Paul addresses them. And he writes the believers in Rome with a reminder of the wickedness of the world they lived in. No matter how culturally acceptable in the world or in the church sin may become, it is still something that is hateful to God. Now, some of Paul's readers were undoubtedly agreeing with the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine being in church on Sabbath morning? This letter's being read. I'm sure some of them were saying amen, don't you think? Preach it, Paul. Tell it like it is. Call sin by its right name. We need to cry aloud and spare not, right? I can just imagine that. But any satisfaction with Paul's reproof of evil was rather short-lived because we turn to chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, Paul very quickly switches gears. And he takes the magnifying glass off of the culture and he places it on the church. And he says this, these startling words, you can hardly believe the apostle wrote them. He says, therefore... You are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For you who judge practice the same things. What are you talking about, Paul? We see the world out there. We see the description you give. Yeah, God hates those sins. What are you talking about? We're just as guilty. We go to church on Sabbath. We pay our tithe. We do this and that. What can you possibly be meaning? How can you say that we do the same thing? And verse, he continues on. But we know that the truth, that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man? You who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? You see, there are many of us, and I include myself in this because I have to. He would go on in chapter 3 to say, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If there's anyone here who thinks they're excluded from this, this letter is for you. Some might say, Chester, you shouldn't preach a sermon on sin. Just talk about the love of Jesus. 
I'm simply sharing with you what Paul wrote, friends, right? I'm trying to follow his outline. Don't forget we talked about the power of the gospel of Jesus, amen? We talked about not being ashamed of the cross of Christ, of the, of the gospel of Christ, of the blood of Jesus. But Paul here has, for a very specific reason, chosen to dwell upon sin. And it's because Christians, believers in the church, too often think sin is just about those out there. We've been baptized. We, we, we've, we've changed so our sins are now culturally and, and ecclesiologically acceptable. But we're sinners still. And Paul says, don't think you can judge those out there because you're a sinner too. I'm a sinner too. We need a Savior. And this is Paul's greatest point. He goes on and he says in verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. No partiality with God. You see, I believe that Paul in this passage is intentionally attempting to stun the church members in Rome. And maybe the Holy Spirit would speak to us here still today. Going self-righteously into some sort of per perception of God's hatred for our sins for instead of just their sins. Just as they are agreeing with Paul, mid-thought, mid-sentence, mid-synapse, as they're just saying, Amen, Paul, preach it. He turns around and he puts the mirror to them. And he's, he's, he's showing them that their own condemnation echoes back. Paul stops their thoughts in their tracks and says, don't pat yourselves on your back thinking you're different. We're all the same. It's true we struggle with different sins, but we're all sinners. And his words bring me to a startling conclusion 2,000 years later in 2013. That conclusion is that really we're all Westboro Baptists with a penchant for hating everyone else's sins while loving and excusing or even being blind to our own. But there is no respect of persons with God. In Proverbs chapter 6, we find a list. Remember, we're talking about love that hates. In Proverbs chapter 6, we find a list of seven things. <laughs> the, the wise man said six things, and he didn't have the delete key back then, you know? So instead of trying to release, he said, wait, wait, there's seven, actually. He, there are six things that God hates, no, seven. Seven, he says. And notice what he says those seven things are. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, or one who sows discord among brothers. And I want you to just reflect on this list. It's a little different than what we got from Romans chapter 1, isn't it? How many of these sins are what we might call church-safe sins? 
There's a number of them here, aren't they? Aren't there? A number of these sins, you and I, could be regular, good, upstanding members of our Christian community and still be guilty of. It's a sobering thought for me. It's a sobering thought for me. Even those that we aren't guilty of, we might say, well, I don't, I don't tell lies. I don't shed innocent blood. I don't make haste to run to evil. But, but if we look at the last part of chapter 1, Romans chapter 1 and verse 32, it, he broadens that net a lot wider than we thought of when we were first listening to his sermon. In chapter 1 and verse 32, he says, um, to those who, knowing the righteousness, righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. The King James says, have pleasure in those who do them. You understand what I'm saying? There are many of us who would not go and kill a man, but we enjoy watching it on television. How can that be fun for a Christian? How can we not be pained when God's name is taken in vain? How can we not be pained when we see marital infidelity? How can we not be pained when we see, we see deception and lies and falsehoods? That's entertainment in our culture today. Do you understand what I'm saying? We think, well, we wouldn't do those things. But too often, too many Christians take pleasure in those who do. And we're entertained by it. And Paul's saying... you're just as guilty. This is hubby stuff, isn't it? It's hubby for me. It's hubby for me. And so, Proverbs 8 tells us in verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate what? There it is. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate, God says. Wow. This just keeps getting closer and closer to my heart. Now it's something as innocuous and ubiquitous as pride. Pride. God hates pride. Lord, have mercy. In fact, I would go one step further, friends. God hates pride, I believe, even more strongly than He hates the socially often condemned outright sins of the world. In the book Christ's Object Lessons, I read this statement, there is nothing, how much? Nothing so offensive to God or so dangerous to the human soul as pride and self sufficiency. Of all sins, it is the most helpless, the most incurable. To be honest with you this morning, this sermon makes me uncomfortable. These truths come close to home. They're unsettling, unnerving, rattling to my sense of well-being. But I keep remembering the truth that we started out with. And that is that God loves sinners. Greater than God's hatred for sin 
is his love for sinners. And I can prove it. Because if God hated sin more than he loved sinners, he would not have been willing to accept sin in the sinner's place. Are you with me? The cross of Calvary proves once and for all that God's love for you and me, God's love for sinners, far transcends even his great hatred for sin. Because he was willing to say, because he loved you and hates my sin, because he loves me and hates my sin, he was willing to say, bring on Chester's sin. I'll take it. I'd rather have that sin and experience the full measure of the cost of sin than be separated from Chester for eternity. That's how much he loves you. He loves you greater than, his love for you is greater than his hatred for your sin. And that's good news, friends. Because if we can only understand the love of God for us, and if we can only understand who we are, then it's only a matter of a simple no-brainer decision to accept him as our Savior from sin. That's all it is. You see, if salvation could be distilled into two concepts, which I don't believe it can, but if salvation could be distilled into two concepts, those two concepts would simply be an understanding of God and an understanding of me. But there's one thing that remains, a decision to accept that loving God who loves me more than he hates my sin. And that's what salvation is all about. It's not just about knowing these truths, these facts. It's about making a decision based upon them. To accept Jesus as my Savior from my sin. Recognizing my sin is just as lethal and just as deadly and just as hateful as the sins of the sinners that I look down my nose upon. My sin took Jesus to that cross. My sin is fatal forever. My sin God hates, but God loves me. Are you thankful for that this morning? Are you thankful that God loves you? You see, God loves us too much not to tell us the truth. You see, I'd rather be saved than lost. But if I'm going to be lost, I'd rather be lost knowing I'm lost than be lost thinking I'm saved. And God loves us enough to honor that decency and to tell us that we need help. We need a Savior. There are many voices in this world today that says sin is normal, sin is, is average, don't worry about it, don't, don't, you're, you're as good as anyone else. And, and, but God says, no, I hate sin, but I love you. I love the one that I died for. Matthew chapter 7 Jesus says that many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all these things in your name? Haven't we prophesied? Haven't we cast out demons? Haven't we worked miracles? And Jesus will say to them, probably the saddest words in human history, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. There's only one thing I can think of that's worse than being lost. 
And that's being lost, thinking you're being saved. And Jesus doesn't want that to happen. So he tells us the truth. He loves us enough to tell us the truth. Love leads us to do what is best for someone else. What love leads us to do difficult things. Love leads us to be honest even when it hurts. Love leads us to warn of danger. And it is in love that God gives us a message of warning for His last day church. We're going to close with Revelation chapter 13, no, Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, I believe, is God's message, especially for the days in which we're living. And God loves you and me enough that He's willing to write a special message to the lukewarm church, the Laodicean church, as it's called in the book of Revelation. It says in verse 14, the angel of the church, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. That's Jesus. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white raiment that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eyesalve that you may see. And then he says in verse 19, as many as I what? As many as I love, I rebuke. And chasten. Are you thankful Jesus loves you? Really? You know it's not all fluffy? Sometimes it's the chastening, it's the rebuke, right? But I'm thankful God loves me still. I'm thankful He loves me enough to rebuke and to chasten me. And He says, Behold, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man Hears my voice and opens the door. I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. One of my favorite stories, I've told it before, but I'll tell it again. It's a little David. Little four year old David is visiting the doctor, and a nurse in the pediatric office had a habit before listening to the little one's heart of putting the stethoscope on their little ears and letting them listen and see what they could hear. And their, light, their eyes would always light up with awe as they listened to the rub-a-dub of their heart. And uh, she never got a response quite like David's, though, because as she gently tucked the stethoscope in his little ears and placed the other end on his chest, and he, she said, listen... What do you suppose that is? And David's little eyebrow furrowed for a moment into a line, and he looked puzzled and then lost as if in thought, and this mystery of this strange tap, 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 uh, deep in his chest. And, and then David's face broke into a wondrous ear-to-ear grin as he said, Is that Jesus knocking? I love that story because it reminds me of how we need to become like a little child. 
And when we're faced with conviction, to recognize Jesus knocking. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, even, even churchgoers filled with pride, even Laodiceans, anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. He wants to be reunited. He wants the barriers of sin to be broken down. He wants to be with his people, his beloved. What about you, my friends? Are you willing to open that heart's door again today? Say, Jesus, I'm faulty, I'm failing. Maybe I've blown it this week. I don't know what your heart's prayer will be. But are you willing to hear that knocking and open that door? And say, Jesus, come in. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for loving sinners more than you hate sin. Thank you for giving us a Savior who demonstrated the power, the length, the depth, the breadth, the height of that love that will not let us go, an everlasting love that draws us to you today. Father, today we come as, as people needing the power of your blood. We come as people with the natural propensity to hate sin that's not ours, and even sometimes to love our own sin while we hate other sinners. And Father, we come needing a transformation of heart. We come needing a Savior. Today, you hear the heart prayer of each person here. I don't know their situation, but you do. And your grace is more than sufficient. I don't know their struggles. I don't know their weaknesses, but you do. And your blood will more than cleanse and make as white as snow. Today we come as church people with a propensity to pride, the sin you particularly hate. I come as a pastor with a propensity to pride. And I ask that you would save me, that you would save us from our sins as you came to do. Thank you for that love. Thank you for that blood. Thank you for that salvation. And thank you for even telling us about your hatred for sin because it separates from you. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.